Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcast. Our seminar series is a look back at some of our conference and seminar presentations where you can hear from people like Anne Pettifor, Joe Larragui and Tony Fahey. Our 10-minute lesson series where we give a brief overview of a policy topic. This is meant to be a useful introduction to an area that we hope our listeners will find useful. And our interview series where we have a chat with experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Anne-Marie O'Reilly, Policy Officer with Threshold and Gavin Elliott, Threshold's Legal Officer. I hope you enjoy it. So thank you so much to Anne-Marie O'Reilly and Gavin Elliott for joining me today from Threshold. You're very, very welcome. Thanks very much, Colette. Thank Thanks for having us. So really, I really just want to talk to you guys about what's going on with the whole rental situation. So in terms of what has happened in the last couple of months, um, there's been some fairly significant policy pieces. So we've had, you know, Pre-pandemic, we had the rent pressure zones. Um, then we've had, you know, the legislation in relation to moratoriums on on evictions for rent arrears um, due to the the pandemic, due to losses in the pandemic. Um, we have had moratoriums in terms of rent increases. Um, we've also had the introduction a few years ago of HAP, that's the household, the housing assistance payment. Uh, for those who may not know. Um, so really, surely you should be seeing a drop off in calls and cases coming to threshold if all of this policy is working. Actually, that would be a reasonable thing to expect, I guess. Um, and I suppose like many organisations like ourselves, I suppose what we're doing every day is trying to work ourselves out of a job so that people don't need us. Um, but the numbers of clients and cases we supported last year did increase. But apart from that, in general, and I suppose this is something Gavin would, would definitely speak to, is the legislation and all those things in place to protect and support tenants have become so complex. It's quite difficult to navigate. And I think tenants and landlords do, do struggle uh, with that. So even just for guidance on can my landlord end my tenancy? Am I supposed to pay this rent increase? When can the landlord next put it up? Oh, I think I'm in a rent pressure zone now. I'm not really sure. Do you know what? Maybe I'll just pay it anyway because I don't really want to upset the landlord because there's nowhere else to rent. Um, to, well, I got this notice of termination. It says they're going to sell. Oh, there needs to be a declaration with it. All right, what do I do now? And then if people want to apply for half or want to get homeless half or would like to stay where they are, but they can't afford it, what can I do? Where can I go? Who can help? And I suppose, fortunately, the advisors in Threshold are amazing. <laughs> They're so knowledgeable. Like, um, they, they just know all the ins and outs and the, the, they work with people across the country and they know how each local authority works as well and everything. So at least I suppose tenants can ring uh, Threshold and get that guidance and information. But yeah, it's, it's a minefield out there. Yeah. And can I ask, Anne-Marie, have you seen a difference in the last couple of years and certainly in last year in the types of queries coming in? Is it, you know, are you still seeing the same types of issues year in, year out or, or has there been a shift? Uh, well, up until we'll set 2020 aside momentarily, um, it was very much the main issue was notice of termination about 30 to 40 percent of queries were notice of termination and within those 
um, 40 to 50 percent were instances where the landlord said they were going to sell. That was definitely the case for like the last four or five years, perhaps. Then after that, it's um, deposit retention, it's standards. Uh, and that's been um, fairly consistent the last few years. Um, and then you'd have queries about uh, HAP as well. Uh, but because notice the termination, oh, sorry, apologies, I should have said rent reviews. So notice the terminations, rent reviews, then deposit retention standards repairs is about the same. And then you're getting into queries about HAP and things like that. And uh, they'd make up maybe six or 7% of the queries. So uh, the top three make up the bulk of our, our, our queries and that's been like that for the last few years definitely okay. at the homeless prevention part the, the keeping the tenancy so either keeping the person in that tenancy or help, or making sure they they're able to access another tenancy ends up being a lot of the work that's undertaken yeah sure and I attended your the launch of your tenant sentiment survey last year last November mm-hmm. and it's a it was a real eye-opener so you know if you believe the narrative we've got upwards of about um, 750,000 people in the private rented sector in that space at the moment mm. um, and there is that narrative out there that this is a choice this is now how we're moving this is how we choose to accommodate ourselves yeah. but yeah. that didn't come through in the, no. the research that you have. No, certainly not. And we've been doing the tenant sentiment service since 2018. And in each one that has that has come through, th- there's very few people that are saying that they rent out of choice um, or that it's their long term choice to rent. And we know that anecdotally. So we all know that uh, any of us who have rented ourselves, any of us who have friends who still rent. And then even the I think it was IGs did their own report in um was it 2018 or 2019? Looking at yeah. yeah, the aspirations and they found the exact same thing. And um, maybe if renting was secure and affordable, perhaps it might be more desirable, uh, but it's not <laughs> more secure and affordable. So why would somebody want to rent? Um, unless they know, well, I'm only going to be here for a couple of years and um, perhaps you know, they just move temporarily to another part of the country or from a different country or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. no, that's um, that's come across strongly in, in, in each of the surveys that we've done. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was really, really struck by that, that 85 percent are only renting because they can't afford to buy. And all of that is is very much a policy decision, you know, that that is because of policy decisions that have been made by various different governments, mm, yes. um, including the current one. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is just, it's quite stark. And you're right in terms of if there were better tenant protections, then perhaps that mm. number might shift and people might mm. actually choose. Um, yeah. And if I, can, if I can turn to Gavin now, in terms of the, the legislative changes that have come in, if some of those were to be extended into the longer term, do you think that might change how tenants feel and how they view their their long-term prospects. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, just following on from what, from what Anne-Marie said, the, you know, one of the, the reasons why we don't have a, a rental market like they have in some parts of, of Europe is that, um, you know, renting in Ireland is, is quite insecure. The, the tenancy can end uh, relatively quickly and uh, through no fault of the tenant often um, so it's very difficult to plan long term to live in private rented accommodation or at least 
in a particular uh, dwelling. So um, that lack of security, that precarity within uh, the the rental market, I think, means that you know people will gravitate towards the security uh, of uh, home ownership. So some of the stuff that we've seen in during the moratorium, for example, or during the the, the pandemic response, the, the moratorium on rental evictions and that sort of thing has, um, I think, something that we could probably look at as, um, you know, going forward, um, uh, something that should possibly be a feature of the legislation surrounding the rental rent sector. So things like termination for the purpose of sale, um, which is something we've spoken about quite a bit, um, is, is possibly something that needs to be looked at in the context of, you know, where do we go from now um, or where do we go from uh, during the recovery from the pandemic. And Gavin, if I can ask you, in terms of what has been introduced as a response to the pandemic, just give a brief outline for people who might be listening and, and who may not be aware, because as Anne-Marie said, so many things have changed. People don't really know where they stand anymore. Um, but what is what is the current position as we stand? The, the current position is that there are, there's there's been two, I suppose, if we if we go back a little bit, there's been two main responses to the pandemic. The first is um, the uh, a moratorium on evictions, and that has changed a little bit. Um, but it was introduced in March. It's it's come and gone um, from last March until now, but it's currently in place, and that means that you can't evict a uh, tenant um, for really any reason other than antisocial behaviour or um, threatening the fabric of the building. So that's that's one strand. The other strand and the other response has been um, specific measures to deal with rent arrears, or rather to deal with evictions for the purpose of um, of rent arrears to deal with um, notices of termination on the basis of rent arrears. So um, that also contains uh, a moratorium. So you're not allowed to evict for the purpose of uh, for rent arrears, but um, and that's also currently in place. Um, but that's quite a complex piece of legislation. It's quite um, detailed. It requires people to register. It requires people to um, declare themselves to be relevant persons to the RTB and to go through a process with, with MABs then as well. So um, the, the uptake on that, I think, has been relatively low. But there are now two kind of parallel moratoriums in place, which is quite confusing for people. And I think, um, again, following on from what um, Anne-Marie said, the, the complexity of the legislation is now um, an, an issue in of itself because it's quite difficult to follow. It's quite difficult even for ourselves in Threshold to follow exactly what's going on with legislation at any given time. Um, so for landlords and tenants, it must be um, incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to, to work out if they can issue a, a notice of termination or if the notice of termination is valid and, and that sort of thing. So. Um, in 2019, we were complaining about the complexity of the legislation and how it was no longer fit for purpose as a, a piece of legislation to be used by lay people who might need to put the case forward at the RTB. Um, and it's only increased since then. So I think um, I think it is becoming an issue where, um, you know, the, the, the difficulty even in, in explaining to people what the legislation is at any given time is um, is a problem. Yeah, I, you mentioned the uptake um, in the newest moratorium, I suppose. 
being quite low. And I was really surprised by that when I had a look for an article we were doing last week, um, just in relation to the journal had said something in the region of 1700 tenants um, had sought protection from the RTB. But yet only less than 3% of those had actually gone through that MABS process that you mentioned, according to a, a PQ that Keanu Callahan asked um, the week before last. What why do you think that there is that disjoint? Is it a fact that there's just such little information out there? You know, surely 93% of the people going through this process haven't just decided that they don't want to do it. Yeah, it's a tricky one um, and it's difficult to know exactly. Um, but I, I do think that possibly the, the complexity is is an issue. Um, but you're right, it's, it's very, very difficult to know exactly what's what's going on in the market and, and what um, what the experience of people is when they're uh, going through the process because the process has changed again slightly. Um, so the legislation that was in place um, in the autumn is slightly different to the legislation that's now in place uh, for people who are going through the relevant person uh, process for, for rent arrears. And um, if anything, it's become more... Uh, intricate since uh, um, since the 10th of January. But I think um, uh, one thing that almost certainly is having an effect is that the the parallel moratorium is a blanket ban on evictions. So for a lot of people, I suppose, that's probably the headline, is that there is this blanket moratorium, which is connected to the five kilometre uh, travel restrictions. So um, I think a lot of people might be, just be thinking, well, this supersedes the other legislation, so I can't be evicted anyway. So, you know, and how that's interacting, I suppose, is, is an open question. But the um, current 5K restriction is in place until the 5th of March, currently. And there's a 10-day grace period at the end of that before people have to move out. So the that legislation is in place realistically until um, mid-March at the earliest. Um, and if the restrictions aren't ex- extended um, and uh, the rent arrears legislation protects tenants up until the 13th of April. So in reality, the, the rent arrears legislation could have relatively little effect for a small number of people because it's really only an extra month's um, worth of protection from eviction for a small cohort of people who have gone through a particular process um, of registering. So um, it could be I mean, the, the the 5K restriction could be extended and, you know, it's anybody's guess if it will be, but um, it, it could end up having little or no practical effect or, uh, you know, a practical effect only for a very small amount of people. And thanks for that. Anne-Marie, you mentioned a list of, of issues that are coming um, into the, the threshold call line. Mm. Arrears wasn't one of them. Um, no. No, like we do we do have a certain amount of arrears queries. Um, I actually was just checking what it was compared to previous years. I think it normally hovers around maybe three, four percent of all our queries uh, are rent arrears related. And what we generally find is those arrears are a result of income loss, some sort of unexpected event in, in somebody's life or um, an administrative delay in respect of HAP or rent supplement. Uh, but they only went up to about um, maybe about 7 or 8% of our overall queries in April, May thereabouts. Um, 
And again, like I said, that was that initial job loss there mid-March uh, last year and rent would have been due within in a couple of weeks. Um, and then it just kind of tapered off a little bit. Now, at the same time, the queries about rent supplement went from being very, very low and they jumped to about 20% or thereabouts in April and May and then kind of tapered off a little bit. Uh, so we... Uh, we are we are concerned about what is going on because as the ESRI uh, data showed last year, they estimate that approximately 40% of the people who lost their jobs as a result of uh, the pandemic are renters. Um, and while a proportion of those may have returned home to family where that was an option, it wouldn't necessarily be an option for all of them. And many of them are young, single people, so likely don't have savings or resources to kind of get them through. Um, so we are concerned that um, that cohort are perhaps are more than likely uh, prioritising the rent over everything else, but then doing without otherwise. And now, obviously, with the the pandemic, there's a lot that we can't do. Uh, so money might money that might have been spent on you know um, going out or things like that maybe can now go toward rent. But again, the ESRI did look at this last year and. You know, we've no idea of knowing how much, what level of rent arrears are out there in the country. There's no record or database of this, but uh, they were of the opinion that there is a there are a cohort who are probably really really struggling financially, but the rent is being prioritised over everything else. Um, and I suppose that what that has really kind of revealed or, or shone a light on for us in Threshold is the manner in which rent arrears is treated uh, does need to change as well. Um, so, and again, this relates back to, you know, why would someone want to buy over rent? Well, if you buy and you get to mortgage arrears, there's a whole system in place. The, the, you, the bank is going to go, well, you've got 28 days to pay that now. And if you don't, you're out. Uh, whereas that is the case at renting. So it used to be a 14-day uh, warning. Uh, you got to pay your arrears. If you didn't pay it, you then had 28 days notice to quit. That warning period increased to 28 days there in I want to say October Gavin can correct me if I'm wrong um, like I said there's been so many bits of legislation it's been a little bit difficult to keep track but again you have to pay that within 28 days and if you don't it's the notice termination and you're out so that that is we, we do need to change how, how we do that uh, to, and that's that'd be one way of making the rental sector more secure in the long term um, but certainly it yeah it has been strange the low uptake of rent supplement overall and the low numbers of people who are declaring themselves as relevant persons to the RTB. And then even within that, the low number of people who have been availing of the MAB service certainly indicates there, there's something going on among those renters uh, that we are kind of yet to, to, to find out about or understand, I guess, and understand what are the appropriate effective supports that need to be put in place in threshold we hear from the people who do look for the assistance and the help uh, so there's clearly a, a, a big cohort out there that aren't looking for the assistance and, and the help yeah what you say in relation to that prioritizing of rent mm. would very much be mm. in line with with my previous experience mm. in that area uh, where people do they prioritize the mortgage or the rent they prioritize the light and heat and feeding the kids not necessarily feeding themselves but once those things are together then everything else can go to pot now there would 
you know, there'd be, be certain kind of exceptions for people who might have a, a high level of money lending arrears because the man comes to the door and there's there's very little avoidance of that. Yeah. Um, but certainly, definitely that the accommodation costs do tend mm. to be prioritised. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because mm. there seems to be murmurings happening again as happened kind of after the last crash around the mortgage arrears that mm. there were a certain element of strategic defaulters. Um, that, you know, people have this eviction moratorium now, so they don't have to pay the rent. But that 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 doesn't seem to be ringing through in any of the no. data that's coming out. No, that definitely doesn't seem to be uh, happening. And I'm sure if it was, we'd, we'd be hearing like landlords would be would be telling us we would hear that uh, the landlord representation organisations would be speaking to it. But, you know, we're, we're not seeing that um and, and even though we have seen an increase in people looking for support and respect to rent arrears, we're not talking huge numbers. And I suppose they are coming looking for support with their rent arrears. They want to get it sorted. It's not just, ah, I'm not going to bother pay that. Yeah, yeah. and that would yes. certainly, again, have kind of rung very, through, very true with my experience in, mm. in the sector in terms of mm. people don't tend to just go, that's ah, only my house, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, they they yeah. do tend yeah. to actually yeah. be quite protective of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean the other thing I suppose where we just we just don't know in terms of um, what's going on is um, the, the amount of kind of rent uh, forbearance that's going on as well. So mm-hmm. landlords coming to kind of informal arrangements or informally reducing the rent and that sort of thing, um, and that's not something that would really show up in statistics because it's quite difficult from a from a legislative point of view for landlords to reduce the rent because there are uh, rent controls in place. The so rent can only increase by a certain amount, so if it's decreased, then you know, can only ever increase uh, by the four percent from that decrease uh, level. So that's going to be a very informal thing that might be happening as well, um, but very difficult to capture in any in any kind of uh, systematic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I can certainly see there being an uptick in insolvencies, for example, when this has played out, because there has to be some level of rent forgiveness or or debt forgiveness generally. And if if the landlords, given how many of them are kind of you know, one and two property mm. landlords, if they're going to forgive that rent and not look for a call in of all those arrears, they'll have to have something on the other side in terms of their own liabilities, their own mortgages mm. as well. Um, Gavin, can I ask you in relation to, as in threshold, you have um, a, a, an ongoing piece around long term tenancies and, yeah. you know, that that. Um, exclusion of the Section 34 uh, terminations. Yeah. So the, um, I was really quite surprised recently when I was having a look through the cost rental, pr- the proposed legislation for the cost rental, the heads of bill that came out there um, a few weeks ago. Mm. Um, because normally when we talk about increased tenant protections, there's that backlash of constitutionally protected property rights. Yeah. But when you look at the legislation around cost rental, it excludes quite a lot from the Residential Tenancies Act. Now, it does it for a particular reason in terms of you know, bringing in this new public policy. But I suppose, what would be your view in terms of how transferable that type of legislation would be into more mainstream tenancy legislation? I mean, I think, I mean, uh, the, the current situation is that, um, you know, we have the... the 
what you've been in the tenancy for six months to acquire part four rights and the majority of what can happen in that tenancy is then governed by legislation rather than by a lease. So once you've um, amassed uh, six months worth of, of occupation, they, there's only certain grounds on which the tenancy can be terminated. So sale, uh, landlord wants the property back for their own use, um, change of use, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's quite restricted in some ways. Um, but one of the things that kind of stands out is that at the end of every six-year period, the landlord can terminate the tenancy for no reason. So he doesn't have to give uh, any, any particular reason at all and just terminate the tenancy. And I think that's something that we've campaigned to have removed uh, for a number of years. Um, in my opinion, it's just, it, it has no place in a modern rental market um, where there is that option just to terminate a tenancy for, for no fault of the tenant or for no stated reason, no purpose really, other than the landlord simply wants to. Um, so, you know, if we're serious about people renting into the long term and we're serious about it at being um, you know, part of our housing infrastructure and part of what, how, we, how we live as a nation, then we need to give people security where they live. We need to allow people to you know, integrate into the community and that sort of thing. And that's not going to be something that happens if there's this sort of Democles hanging over them at all times where they know that the tenancy can be terminated um, for a particular reason or for no reason um, at the end of every six year period. Um, and the other thing, I suppose, you know, the other side of that coin really is the enforcement aspect of the whole thing as well, where whatever about the strict provisions of the Residential Tenancies Act, it falls to the tenant to enforce their rights under the legislation. So if the landlord issues a notice for sale and the tenant doesn't really think that the landlord is selling it, it's up to the tenant to go to the RTB and to present their case and to, uh, you know, um, enforce the legislation that way. So, you know, we have a kind of tenant-led enforcement regime um, under the, the Residential Tenancies Act. So all of those things, I think, combine to make renting quite a precarious proposition. Um, you know, we have more and more people renting into old age, which is also an issue um, with people who are, you know, aging within the private rental sector, maybe aging to the point where they're very unlikely to be able to ever get a mortgage. So they're looking at renting long term and that sort of thing. Um, and we just, we need to make the, the private rental sector more secure and we need to make it an option where people can decide, I will live here for the next 20 years and I will pay my rent every month, but I'll live here for the next 20 years. It's just not possible to say that um, in, in Ireland today because there's no guarantee that your landlord will decide um, to terminate the tenancy. So back to you, Amory, if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned that some of the, the more prevalent policy issues that were coming up were deposit retention and standards um, that were coming through in, in your own work. Um, I know that you have two campaigns from the, mm-hmm. the various campaigns that you have, mm. one on the deposit protection yeah. scheme and one for an NCT for housing. Can you mm. elaborate a bit more on that? What would that actually mean? 
Sure. So the deposit protection scheme is something that uh, we've actually been advocating for for over 10 years now. And it was included um, in the programme for government, I think, in 2011. Uh, and it was legislated for in 2015 and then it was abandoned. Um, but there's lots of different ways a deposit protection scheme can be delivered. And there's a no, there's a number operating in you know, it, it exists in Northern Ireland and in England um, and what we'd like to see is the deposit will be held by a body um, that could be the RTB or uh, an organisation that already provides these services could be contracted to deliver it. And the deposit will be held by that body. Uh, and when the tenancy would come to an end, um, there'll be a protocol in place for the return of the deposit. However, if the landlord feels that there's been damage to the property or money needs to be taken off the deposit, they would put in an application for that. Uh, and the the body overseeing this would, would look uh, at the evidence provided. Um, obviously, the tenant would have an opportunity to say, well, actually, that's not the case or that was like that when I moved in. And a decision will be made and the deposit returned accordingly. Um, so it, it, the, and the, there's lots of, I suppose, there's various different ways that can be done. Um, but that would be essentially it. Uh, and there's a huge amount of money held on deposit um, by landlords throughout the country. I think when we looked at it in 2019, I think, I think it was somewhere in the region of 300 million or more is potentially what is being held uh, and so there's also the option or the possibility of some of that money being invested as well and perhaps the potential of getting a return on it so it is in the program for government again and we're hoping to see some progress on that in respect of the nct for housing it's about improving the standards in the private rented sector so there it, we have the regulations for the minimum standards in rented housing uh, the local authorities have the responsibility to carry out the inspections. Um, so they carry out the inspections. And then the next part is to work with the landlord to bring that property up to standard. However, the way the current system works is the inspection rate is incredibly low. And of those that are inspected, the number that achieve compliance is incredibly low. So there's this whole system in place that isn't really achieving um, a whole lot, particularly considering the resources that are put into it and the funding for those inspections has increased over the last couple of years. The numbers, I, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but there has been an, an ongoing increase. So our proposal is that a landlord would be required to have a certificate of compliance before they could let the property. And so in our original proposal, uh, we proposed that the landlord would engage an independent um, building professional uh, according to um, regulations, um, like it would be prescribed who you could get to, to do this certificate to say that it meets standard. <clears throat> So similar now, to the BER certificates yeah. that a landlord would have to provide. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they would need this then to to let the property. Now, we revised that proposal in 2019 and proposed an alternative in that uh, the local authority, uh, they could be the ones that provide those certificates. However, we recommended that the inspections and the provision of the certificates and everything be streamlined uh, across all local authorities and perhaps it be overseen by one, one body 
because as it stands, the processes and practices and mechanisms vary hugely from local authority to local authority. So there's very little consistency in it. And that uh, to register a tenancy, the landlord would need to have this certificate. Uh, so now with the RTB, it's necessary to register every single year and they can also inspect uh, carry out uh, inspections in regards non-registration and there are sanctions in place then for non-registration so that would help then with the with to have a landlord comply with that element of it and hopefully and, and the idea at the same time would be to actually ensure the standards are there uh, so that that's so there's again so there's, there's two different ways that could be delivered the purpose would be to improve the standards not just to improve the rate of inspection so that's a uh, yeah yeah, I remember looking at the data a couple of years ago uh, for something that I was writing and there was it was about 7% of all accommodation was being inspected. Mm. And of that 7%, it was up in the 80s, hitting yeah. the 90s that were non-compliant. So clearly yeah. the inspections are concentrating on areas or on properties they know are going to be non-compliant. Um, in terms yeah. of getting... I suppose getting inspections up to a rate that we would yeah. like to see, but up yeah. to a far, far better rate to, to be able to facilitate something like that. Have a threshold done any costings on that? Um, no, we haven't done costings on that. Now, the previous minister had uh, proposed that a property would be inspected once every four years. So you do an inspection rate of 25%, and that the they're moving toward that and, and, and through the increased resourcing of the local authorities. Um, so we'd be quite happy to see, you know, if, if it went to that. However, the current system in place doesn't help with achieving compliance. So we could have a 25% inspection rate and still have a 100% failure rate, if you know what I mean. Uh, so the, the, the key is actually achieving the compliance. And some local authorities have a lot more success with that than others. And I would have spoken to the staff and a few different local authorities who have responsibility for this. And some just, they have the experience, they've been at this a long time. You know, we'd be talking about the local authorities have much higher uh, numbers of private rented properties. And that's where we kind of need that, that um, consistent approach across the board and, and going after achieving the compliance. Just going to add, <clears throat> there is a there's a huge variation throughout the country in in terms of of what properties are targeted and what mm. properties are inspected and that sort of thing. So, as you say, some local authorities do seem to um, focus on properties that they mm. uh, assume probably won't be compliant, so they're going after the sort of the, mm. the, the bottom of the market. Yeah. Um, but some local authorities, for example, inspect new bills and this sort of thing. Yeah. So there's very little consistency in how inspections are, are handled in a sort of strategic point of view. And I suppose just to to circle back to where we started, maybe, um, you know, the pandemic has provided a lot of opportunities in terms of we've really seen where we're lacking. Um, so there's there's a lot of opportunity to do better. Um, and there's also been some effort made, at least, to increase protections for tenants, albeit on a temporary basis and, a, as we discussed with Gavin, a quite confusing basis. Um, but if you were to think of kind of, you know, maybe next year, the year after, what mm. kind of learnings can we take from all of this? What would you like to see, you know, achieved once this is finished? Mm. Um, I suppose one thing that's been very striking is the impact the moratorium on evictions had. Now, it 
the impact was more so for families as opposed to single uh, or adult households without dependents. But instantly we saw a drop in the numbers of people experiencing homelessness. And um, that 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 was good for everybody. As I, I said it before, nobody lost on that front. Nobody lost out on that front. Um, so extending those protections, really providing and delivering real security of tenure for people living in the private rent sector would be a huge, would make a huge difference to everybody who is renting uh, right now. And that's something that could be done. It was done overnight with the moratorium because the government recognised the pandemic the crisis and so we're talking about you know um public good um as and the housing crisis the homeless crisis surely warrants the same response uh, but having true long-term security of tenure would make a huge huge difference to people live in the private sector and like i said nobody loses out on that so mm-hmm. i think that definitely in the, in the more short medium term that's something that could be done and be very effective Okay, thank you. And Gavin? Yeah, I think um, I think one thing that the, the the continued lockdowns over 2020 and and this year have kind of brought uh, brought home to a lot of people is is the importance of home and the importance of mm. you know the the dwelling. So it's the um, the the last line of defense, I suppose, against the pandemic. And um, for a lot of people. How they experience their their home has has differed quite or has altered quite substantially during the pandemic. So a lot of people are working from home, for example, or or you know if they're not working from home, they're spending an awful lot more time there. So I think there is a space for us um, once we do start to um, emerge from the crisis to to reconsider what home is and mm-hmm. um, what it should be, and you know uh, how we live how we live in cities, how we live uh, especially throughout the country, and that sort of thing. Um, and I hope um, mm-hmm. I hope we take that opportunity to kind of uh, just to consider that and consider the the importance of home and what it means um, and and uh, you know how we change that or alter it going forward. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have both of you with me today. Um, thank you so so much your for your time and your kindness uh, and all of your inputs. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Lovely. Thanks, Millian Gillette. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to know more about what Threshold do or want to see any of their publications, you can log on to their website, threshold.ie. If you need their services, you can call them at 1800 454 454. And that line operates Monday to Friday, 9am until 9pm. And as always, if you have any suggestions for what you might want to hear on our podcast series, please do drop us a line at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.